0: Yeah, some Some of you thought you missed the rapture. Let's uh, take our Bibles this morning and open them to the book of Genesis. Chapter 24. So we're progressing. Do you notice that? Genesis chapter 24 and verse 1, the title of our message this morning is Standing on the Promises. Standing on the Promises. It is interesting to me that as we get to the, towards the end of Abraham's life, we see his faith in the things that God has shown him growing exponentially. We no longer really see the shifting character that we saw earlier in the book of Genesis where he sort of had a habit of telling a half-truth to wiggle his way out of a problem. Uh, We see a man who is saved and not just saved, but he's growing in his faith. And I say to myself, you know, Lord, as life progresses, I want to be just like that. I want to be the type of person that is pressing into the things of God, not growing further and further away from God as I age chronologically. Abraham, of course, is a very special character in the outworking of God's purposes because it is through Abraham that God made a sovereign decision to birth the nation of Israel. And so that's why the book of Genesis focuses so uh, intently on this man, Abraham. And in fact, if you've been with us in our study, here's all of the things that have actually happened to Abraham in his life. In chapter 23, his helpmate and his spouse, His wife, Sarah, had passed away. Her burial at a particular burial site in Hebron is focused on in chapter 23. And as life sort of unfolds, things in the life of Abraham unfold very naturally. We have the death of his wife, and now we have another key event in his life, The marriage of his son, Isaac. This marriage that God is going to put together between Isaiah, excuse me, yeah, Isaac and Rebecca, there we go, is obviously very significant because if you look at this chapter, there are 67 verses devoted to this. And we're going to cover all 67 today. No, I'm just kidding. We may get started a little bit today. So it's obviously something that God wants us to understand. And the reason the marriage between uh, Isaac and Rebekah is so significant is if that marriage does not come into existence, you won't have a Jacob. And if you don't have a Jacob, you don't have the nation of Israel because Israel consists of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, And if you don't have a Jacob, you don't have Jacob's sons, Jacob's dozen, who became the 12 tribes of Israel. And if you don't have the tribes, you don't have a very special tribe named Judah that the Messiah himself is going to come from, according to prophecies given in Genesis 49, verse 10. So this marriage is a key event in the outworking of God's Purposes. Here is sort of a bird's eye view, if you will, of these 67 verses. Uh, we won't get through all of these today, quite obviously. We may get through the initial instructions and perhaps the servant's prayer. But notice the very solemn instructions that Abraham gives to his servant uh, to obtain, to retain, a very special person named Rebecca to marry his son Isaac. Of course, Abraham and the servant that Abraham commissioned to retrieve Isaac's bride. They don't know the name Rebecca yet, but they're going to learn in this chapter that God is already putting a marriage together before the marital partners even knew one another. It begins with Abraham giving some very strong, very aggressive instructions to his servant to go and find a particular wife for Isaac. So notice, if you will, verse 1, the occasion. Jeremiah, excuse me, Genesis 24, verse 1. Now Abraham was old and advanced in age. Um, Give or take, there were probably, most of the commentators seem to agree, about three years or so in between the events of chapter twenty three the death of Sarah, and the events of chapter twenty four, which would mean that Abraham at this time would be about a hundred and forty years old, according to Genesis seventeen verse seventeen, Isaac was born when Abraham was one hundred. And we would think Isaac would be about 40 years old when these events began to transpire. Back to Genesis 24, verse 1. Now, Abraham was old and advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. All the way back in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, God articulated eight blessings upon abraham you'll own land from the euphrates to the uh, to, from the euphrates to the nile you will become a great nation you'll be personally blessed your name will be great you'll be a blessing to others those who bless you will be blessed those who curse you will be cursed and actually through you is going to come a blessing to the entire world now, Abraham has walked with the Lord now for decades, and he has not seen all of these prophecies come into existence, but certainly a lot of them are already starting to happen. And so therefore, it's acknowledged here in the Bible that by the age of 140, Abraham had been blessed in every way. And as a New Testament Christian, it's sort of tempting to look at this and say, well, you know, I'm glad that worked out for Abraham, uh, but what about me? the truth of the matter is the same could be said of you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. You have been at the point of faith alone, in Christ alone, blessed in every way. You see this teaching in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 3, which says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed past tense, us, with 75%, doesn't say that, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You go to the Lord as a church-age Christian and you say, Lord, I want you to bless me, and the Lord says, what else do you want? Your account is already maxed out. The truth of the matter is there's a lot of people out there that are trying to do things to get blessed by God. A lot of people look at giving that way. Gee, I've got to give financially to the church to receive God's blessing. The truth of the matter is you've already been blessed. You don't give to get blessed. You give because you're already blessed. Gee, I I need to live my life a certain way to get God's blessing. Wrong way of thinking. You've already been blessed. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, you you live your life a particular way as a Christian not to get blessed, but because you've already been blessed. You'll notice that our blessings are spiritual, and they're in the heavenly places. Abraham, who was the father, if you will, of God's earthly people, The nation of Israel was blessed with earthly things. How greater are our promises that have a spiritual and heavenly origin? You are, as a New Testament Christian, completely maxed out in terms of blessing. We come to church not to get blessed, but because we are blessed. We take communion not to get blessed, but because we are blessed. It's the whole focus of the New Testament. It's a positional truth. It's a positional reality. And yet so many Christians never take hold of this promise and they look at themselves as sort of, you know, spiritual paupers, poverty stricken people that God doesn't even want to hear from. Boy, if I pray too much to God, he might get annoyed with me sort of mindset. No, that's those aren't Realities the Bible describes. We have been blessed past tense with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Take hold of it and live it out. Once you understand this and you understand what God says about you, it will, I can guarantee you, it will change the course of your entire life. It will control your speech. It will control how you spend your time. It will control how you interact with other people in terms of influence because of who you are. You know, our society will put the beautiful people, you know, on a stage. Look at the young and the attractive. Look at the wealthy. You remember that show, The Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous? And we kind of say to ourselves by a worldly standard, I wish I was one of them or one of those or like them. And we don't consider what God says about us, that you have something far greater in terms of a blessing from God. You have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Abraham had wonderful blessings, but they were earthly in nature. And so as he is now commissioning his servant to retain this potential wife from Isaac, he gives his servant some very clear instructions through an actual oath in verses 2 through 4. Notice, if you will, verse 2. Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of, Over all that he owned, please place your right hand under my thigh. Now, who is this servant? The name isn't given. But if I was a betting man, and I'm not a betting man, but if I was, I think that this servant is probably Eliezer of Damascus, who is mentioned in Genesis chapter 15, verse 2. In Genesis 15 verse 2, it says, Abraham said, O Lord, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? He was the top servant, if you will, in Abraham's household. In fact, this man um, was so elevated within Abraham's household when God gave Abraham the promise that you're going to have a son or an heir At first, he didn't believe that this heir would come from his own body. He said, it must be coming from Eliezer of Damascus, this servant in my household. And God corrected the record right then and there in Genesis 15. He says, no, this man will not be your heir, but one coming from your own loins, your own body, will be your heir. And so when Abraham now is commissioning a servant to go retain or fetch whatever word you want to use, a wife or Isaac, it's a strong argument that the servant is Eliezer of Damascus. Eliezer of Damascus, if we're right on this, is one of the most selfless people probably in all of Scripture. Because Eliezer of Damascus was the heir to Abraham's estate until Isaac showed up and disinherited him. Eleazar of Damascus had every right from a human perspective to be jealous of Isaac. He had uh, every right from a human perspective to try to undermine Isaac right down to his marriage. But Eleazar of Damascus does not do that. He sees his role as a servant. He is a selfless, unselfish individual, and he sees his role as a servant to be a blessing to his master, Abraham. I hope that our walk with the Lord is just like that. Because after all, what are we at the end of the day? We're servants. In fact, the New Testament uses the word doulos, slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as Eliezer of Damascus did not seek to push his own perspective, his own will, and he existed to execute the will of Abraham, that's your role as a Christian relative to God. May our lives not be about us and what we want and what we want to do. May we just say, Lord, today is yours. Not my will be done, but thy will be done. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 2 talks about a steward. And it says, what is required of a steward? What is a steward? A steward is a manager, not an owner. Someone who manages on behalf of the master. That's who we are to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not the owners of his blessings. He is the owner. We are simply managers. And may we hear those words at the Bema Seat Judgment, Well done, thy good and faithful servant. What is required of a steward? What is required of a steward is faithfulness, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 2. And we certainly see that through this man, Eleazar of Damascus. Now, what is this business here about second part of the verse, please place your hand under my thigh. Arm of Fruchtenbaum describes this oath that this servant is taking to get this wife for Isaac as follows. Verse 2b describes the sign of the oath. Put, I pray, your hand under my thigh. This was a euphemism. A euphemism is a polite way of saying something. Put your hand under my thigh is a euphemism for genitals and actually meant the holding of the genitals. It is the same word that is translated loins in chapter 46, verse 26. One reason for this procedure was due to the fact that the genitals are the source of life. And the seat of vital power. And so this would solemnize, solemnize the oath at the point of the very source of life. It was a solemn sign that the oath was not carried, that if the oath was not carried out, the children will avenge the oath takers unfaithfulness. This may be related to the covenant of circumcision, which was heart, or done on the same part of the body. This procedure will be mentioned one more time in the book of Genesis, chapter 49, verse 29. What is happening here is an oath. And as Arnold Fruchtenbaum explains it, going back into the history and the customs of the ancient Near East, this is a very solemn oath that is being taken here. Place your hand under my thigh, verse 3, and I will make you swear, Abraham speaking to the servant, by the Lord God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. You'll notice that as this oath is taken, Abraham describes God as the God of, of the heaven and the earth. That is language that goes right back to Genesis chapter one, verse one, which says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The book of Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 24 says, can God, can a man hide himself in a hiding place? So I do not see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord. He's reminding his servant that you are in a relationship with the God that spoke and the heavens and the earth left into existence. That's who we're dealing with here. That is the author of this covenant that Abraham received called the Abrahamic Covenant. And just keep that in mind when you go through your trials and tribulations, which we all do as Christians this side of the, this side of eternity. When you go through your emergencies in life and you're tempted to think that the emergency is just too big for you, which it probably is, or it wouldn't be called an emergency. Amen? But it's not too big for God. Whatever quandary, whatever problem you find yourself in right now, you need to remember that the God that you are in a relationship with, through faith alone in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, is the God that spoke and in a nanosecond the heavens and the earth leapt into existence. You start to understand who God is and who we are related to and suddenly the problems of life don't seem quite as big as we initially thought. So this reminder is given here from Abraham to this servant. And part of this oath is that you shall not take a wife for my son Isaac from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. Why would he say something like that? He's in the land which is later to become the land of Israel. He does not yet have legal possession of it by way of execution. The only thing he has, as we saw last week, is this burial plot for his wife, Sarah, that's described in Genesis 23. And the land is filled with Canaanites. And God is very clear, or Abraham is very clear with his servant, that when you find a wife for my son Isaac, do not take a wife from amongst the Canaanites. What a narrow way of thinking. All of these women here in the land of Canaan, you are not to take a wife for my son from among them. Instead, you're to go somewhere else, which he'll mention in just a minute. Why, why would he make such a narrow statement? Well, the answer is the Canaanites were under a curse. You remember where the Canaanites came from. After the worldwide flood, the world was repopulated through the sons of Noah, Ham, Shem, and japheth And from Ham's line came this group of people called the Canaanites. The Canaanites went into that area that we have circled there, that today we call the land of Israel, and occupied that land. And God, all the way back in Genesis chapter 9, verse 25, says that group of people is under a curse. You see this expressed in Genesis 9, verse 25, where it says, when Noah's son Ham sinned, you can go back into our teaching archives and get our treatment and exposition of Genesis 9. So he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. God did not curse the Canaanites because of race. He did not curse the Canaanites because of ethnicity. He did not curse the Canaanites because of skin color. He put a curse on the Canaanites in essence because the Canaanites cursed themselves by following the detestable practices of their father, Ham, who uncovered Noah's nakedness. And as the saying goes, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. The Canaanites were imitators, morality-wise, of their progenitor, Ham. And God says that whole group there in the land of Canaan is under a curse. It's expressed again in the book of Genesis, chapter 15, verse 16, where it talks about the Amorites who were a subgroup amongst the Canaanites. And it says, Then the fourth generation will return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. It's not as if God didn't love these people and they had no awareness of a knowledge of God. Rahab the harlot was part of that group. And she knew when the spies came in, in the book of Joshua, exactly who Yahweh was. She was aware of how Yahweh had performed the miracle of drying up the Jordan and how a generation earlier he had dried up the Red Sea And when the 12 spies went into that land to spy it out, they ran into Rahab the harlot, and she knew all about these things. These are people that knew God, but for the most part decided to shut out of their lives a knowledge of God. God gave these people 400 years to repent. But eventually, the wickedness of the Amorites is going to run its course The cup is going to be overfilled, overflow, and the judgment of God cannot be averted. Now that judgment of God is coming later on in biblical history as described in the book of Joshua, where Joshua was specifically told after 400 years of a grace period, I want you to go into the land of Israel, God says to Joshua, and I want you to exterminate the Canaanites Man, woman, child, animal, wipe them all out. And it has to do with detestable practices that they were involved in for 400 years and shunning the grace of God during that time period. Eventually, judgment would come. And God, of course, giving these commands, understood exactly the future of the Canaanites. And so I obviously don't want my son Isaac to marry one of these Canaanites. The book of Deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 2 through 4 gives that generation instructions. The Joshua generation. Concerning the eradication of the Canaanites. It says in Deuteronomy 7 verses 2 through 4 when the Lord your God delivers you, delivers them before you and you defeat them, you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them, and watch this, furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. Well, why not? What's wrong with marrying the Canaanites? Deuteronomy 7 verse 4 explains this. For they will, not they might, They will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods, and then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. You start to intermingle with the Canaanites. Not only are you intermingling with a group of people that are under a curse, and they put themselves under the curse, but you're intermingling with a group of people that eventually the tail will wag the dog. And it really doesn't matter how prosperous and how beautiful the Canaanite women were. God says, don't have my son intermarry with any of them because of these biblical passages that we're speaking of here. Boy, is there a modern day parallel for that. The book of 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 14 through 18. Says do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst, and be ye separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean. and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Interesting idea about being unequally yoked. It's a harness that's put over two animals. And if animal A is stronger than animal B, obviously animal A will influence animal B when they're yoked together. The Bible is very clear about being very cautious about entering any kind of personal relationship with an unsaved person. This is typically applied to marriage, which should be a no-brainer. But it's applied, you can apply it to other types of relationships as well. You know, partnerships in business, etc., etc., etc. You get yourself involved intimately with an unbeliever in marriage the day will come when the tail will wag the dog and they will influence you more than you influence them. If I am standing up here on a chair, let's pretend, and I ask the smallest person in this room to come up and grab my hand, and I say to you, is it easier for me to pull this small person up or for the small person to pull me off the chair? Obviously, it's far easier for the small person to pull me off the chair because they have the law of gravity on their side. That is what intimate relationships with unbelievers will do. You think you're going to pull them up. But in reality, they will pull you off the chair. And this is particularly true with marriage. You know, when I was coming of age as a Christian, there was this concept that they used to call it missionary dating. Oh, I'm going to go out and get dating so-and-so and and -and such-and-such. Well, are they a Christian? Well, no. But I'm going to lead them to Christ. Sometimes that works out, but most of the time it doesn't. That path is filled with heartache, and heartbreak and frustration. And if you find yourself today in that kind of situation, you ought to talk to somebody that's gone down that road. It's a very, very precarious road. Yeah, but but, Pastor, we have so much in common. Really? What do you have in common? Well, she or he talks about God. What, do they talk about Jesus? Well, not really. But they do use the G-word, and we have so much in common. Well, like what? Well, we have the same personality temperament, you know, we have the same interests. We have the same horoscope. The truth of the matter is you have nothing in common with that person, nothing. You're a sheep, they're a goat. You're a wheat, they're tare. You're a child of God, they're a child of Satan. You're going to heaven, they're going to hell. I mean, don't talk to me about personality types. You have nothing in common with that person. And tragically, many, many Christians will disobey this advice because of, it's not even advice, it's a biblical command. It's what God says. Because of expediency or some human reason, they won't wait on God for the right marital partner and they get themselves hooked into these types of relationships and it's completely and utterly destructive. I mean, look no further than Lot. Isn't that what the whole story is about? That we studied earlier in the book of Genesis, how he pitched his tent towards Sodom and later on, he became involved in the city politics of Sodom. And eventually, you looked at Lot's life, and you could see no discernible difference. Between the lifestyle of Lot, who I believe was a believer, and went to heaven upon death, Second Peter 2, 7 and 8 seems to indicate that, and the unsaved world. In fact, when Lot got spiritual and started to warn of coming judgment, his own family thought he was jesting. That's what happens when an unbeliever or a believer gets involved in some sort of intimate relationship with an unbeliever, believer and unbeliever. Yes, we're in the world. We're living in Satan's domain. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. There's a difference. You have to, in life, go through basic contacts just to live in this world. But you have absolute and total control, as a Christian, of whom you become intimate with. And consequently, Isaac Abraham, as he's commissioning his servant to find a wife for Isaac, is very clear. Do not take a wife for Isaac from amongst these people, the Canaanites, in the land. Well, where is he supposed to get the wife from then? Glad you asked. It's in verse 4. But you will go to my country and take my relatives to take a wife for Isaac. Well, where is Abraham supposed to go? Abraham is supposed to go, excuse me, the servant is supposed to go to Abraham's country. Where is Abraham's country? Where did he come from? He came from Ur of the Chaldeans. And according to Genesis chapter 11, verse 31, his family migrated upward to a city called Haran. Genesis 11 verse 31 says, Terah, that's Abraham's father, took Abraham his son and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the city of the land of Canaan, and they went as far as Haran and settled there. You want to find a wife for my son? Here's my solemn oath I'm giving you, servant, who could be Eliezer of Damascus. Don't get him a wife here in Canaan. Go where I'm from. Get outside the influence of Canaan. Get outside the influence of these people and go to Ur of the Chaldeans and better yet go to Haran because that's where my family settled. We already know where that group is. Um, you might recall that we made mention of them in Genesis 22, verses 20 through 24. Abraham has a brother named Nahor. Nahor has a wife named Milcah, and from the relationship, the marriage between Nahor and Milcah, we have eight individuals born in that line. One of them is Bethuel, who was the parent of Rebekah. That's why that information is given at the end of Genesis 22. It's preparing us for what is coming in Genesis 24 concerning rebecca who is god's choice for isaac and it tells us exactly where rebecca is she's with abraham's original family first in ur Ur, and then later on in haran now the servant upon taking this oath gets a little nervous as you might expect and he asks a question verse 5 the servant said to him suppose the woman is not willing to follow me To this land. Should I take your son back to the land from where you came? So the question is, what if I find her in Ur or Haran and she doesn't want to come back? That's a fair question. What if she doesn't want to come to Canaan? Is it okay if I take Isaac to where she is rather than to take her Where Isaac is. And you'll notice Abraham's answer here. It's very interesting. Verse 6, Then Abraham said to him, him, Beware that you do not take my son back there. My son is staying here. But the wife is going to come from there. Now why in the world would Abraham say that? Because he's moving into divine promise here. He's accepting what God said. Because God said something to Abraham that probably made no sense at the time. He says, I'm giving you this whole land of Canaan and then more. I'm going to give to you a plot of real estate It's going to start in modern-day Iraq and is going to go all the way down to Egypt. It's going to be from the Euphrates to the Nile. So you would not take Isaac out of that land since the promises of God are to me in this land. Do you see the growth in this man? Speaking now of Abraham. I mean, he accepted at face value what God said to the point of answering the servant's question that do not take Isaac out of here. This is why Abraham is in the hall of faith. I mean, he had received none of these promises yet by way of execution. These are just promises. The only thing he had is this burial plot for his wife in Hebron. But he so believed everything that God told him that he stood on the promises. Hence the title of the sermon, Standing on the Promises. That's actually a Christian hymn, isn't it? And I'll sing that for you at this time. No, I will not do that. I mean, he was living his life as if the promises of God were real. Is that how you live as a Christian? Is that how I live? I mean, are you so convinced that everything God has said to you as a church-age believer is going to be executed, that you can actually order your personal life around it, right down to marital instructions concerning what Isaac is supposed to do, what Rebecca is supposed to do, etc. I mean, this is not a guy that's wishy-washy anymore, this man Abraham. He's not the one telling half-truths about Sarah being his sister to get his way out of problems, which he's done twice. I'm I'm seeing growth in this man. I want to be just like that. I don't want to be someone as I get older that gets more wishy-washy in the things of God. I want to be someone that walks by faith. The book of Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 8 says, By faith Abraham... And then verse 9 says, By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob and fellow heirs of the same promise. God is impressed with faith. Isn't that sort of the kind of thing Jesus said when he encountered people in the Gospels that believed what he said? He said, I haven't... I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. That's the kind of faith that Abraham is is walking in here. This is not a heaven or hell issue. We, we know he's saved all the way back in Genesis 15, verse 16. This is not a birth issue. This is a growth issue. When the problems of life hit, do you have certain promises from God? And by the way, you've got about 7,000 promises Are you the type of person that will not yield to the emotion of an emergency mentality, but will just stand on what God says? Because at the end of the day, it is impossible for God to what? To lie. You'll notice also, moving down into verse 7, of Genesis chapter 24, that Abraham sort of fleshes out the instructions to the servant concerning the retrieving of Rebekah for Isaac. Verse 7 it says, Then the Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth, who spoke to me and swore to me, saying to your descendants, I will give this land, he will send his angel, look at that, before you. And you will take a wife for my son from there. You'll notice that Abraham reminds this servant who has a lot of questions in his mind, what if Rebecca doesn't want to come back? He reminds the servant of God's providence. He calls God here the God of heaven, which is another dialing backward to Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. It's exactly what we saw back in verse 3. It's exactly what we saw in Jeremiah 23 verse 24 where God says, Do I not fill the heavens and the earth? I mean, this uh, this, this uh, project of finding a wife for my son, it may look like a big deal to the servant, but Abraham says to the servant, it's not that big a deal for God. Because if God can speak and the heavens and the earth left into existence, how hard do you think it is for God to get Isaac's wife, would-be wife, back to the land of Canaan? It's really no problem at all. And by the way, God has a track record with me, Abraham says. Then the God of heaven spoke, the God of heaven to who took me from my father's house and from the land of my nativity, from my birth. You can trust God because you know what? God's been dealing with me ever since Genesis 11. And he took me all the way out of the Ur of the Chaldeans, up north to Haran and into the land of Israel. I mean, if God already did that, how hard is it for him to retrieve a wife for my son Isaac in that area? You'll notice he says, God spoke to me. Abraham was blessed by God in eight ways. And one of those blessings included hearing the audible voice of God. I know a lot of people today are telling me God told me this and God told me that. I have my suspicions of those kinds of things. But Abraham heard the voice of God. And by the way, you have the voice of God too. It's right here. I mean, you have something that he never had. You have a finite, contained revelation from God in these 66 books of the Bible, that if you, if you read it and let it say what it wants to say, it's the voice of God Himself. And why more churches are not teaching this book is completely beyond me. It's the greatest blessing a person could ever have. The voice of God. God speaking to me. Primarily through, through His Word. God not only spoke to me, but he swore to me. That's a reference back to the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 15. Where God, when Abraham was asleep, passed through the animal pieces. And God is saying, this covenant and everything I promised you, it's on my shoulders. It's not on you, it's on me. Because God alone, as represented by the oven and the torch, passed through those animal pieces when Abraham was asleep. It's an unconditional covenant. Go back to our teachings that we did in Genesis 15 to get more information on that. That covenant promises to Abraham and his descendants land, seed, and blessing. That's the foundation of Israel's covenantal structure. Because all subsequent biblical revelation does is come along and amplify on those promises. Land promise amplified in the land covenant in the time of Moses. Seed promise amplified in the Davidic covenant in the time of David. Blessings amplified in what is called the new covenant announced in the time of Jeremiah. He believed it. It probably made no sense to him when it was spoken, but he believed it. I mean, would you believe a promise like that, that you're going to get that tract of real estate when the land is totally occupied by God-haters? Lord, what about the God-haters? What about the Canaanites? Oh, you don't have to worry about them. They're under a curse. They're marked for destruction. That's why I don't want you to have Isaac marry one of those. I realize that the promises of God can seem insurmountable. How how is God going to pull this off? How is God going to pull off my future glorification, for example? How could he do that? How could my glorification be so certain that at the end of the book of Romans chapter 8, God speaks of my glorification as if it already happened? Lord, how, can, how are you going to do that? God says, I'm the God of heaven and earth. You don't have to worry about how I'm going to do it. You just have to believe me. And then we say, okay, Lord, I believe. And the Lord is pleased. I have not found such great faith, Jesus said, in all of Israel. Because without faith, it is what? Impossible to please God. You mean God isn't looking for my performance? No, He's looking for your faith. You get the faith right, performance typically will fall into place. So many people are striving and straining to do this or that, thinking that that makes them right with God. And God just says, believe. Believe. My yoke, did Jesus not say this? Is easy. My burden is light. The Pharisees of Christ's day knew all the performance of religiosity to push the people under. Jesus, by contrast, says, My yoke is easy. My burden is light. I want you to believe what I said. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. Of course, God is going to help you get this wife for Isaac. Abraham says, look at everything he's done for me. Oh, and by the way, did I mention this? Abraham says, there's going to be an angel. Dispatch from heaven to help you. Do you believe in angels? Do you believe in guardian angels? I do. Because it's taught in the scripture. The book of Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14 of angels says, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Hey, that's me. I'm going to inherit salvation. You mean God dispatches angels to help me in my life reach where I'm supposed to go? That's what the Bible says. You mean the God of heaven and earth is on my side? Yes, that would be enough, but as if that weren't enough, which it is enough, but if that weren't enough, I'm going to dispatch angels, in this case an angel from heaven to help you. Do you realize with the angels that are spoken of in the Bible, 10,000 times 10,000, myriads of angels, that Satan only deceived a third into falling with him? Now, nobody has ever accused me of being a mathematical genius or anything, but doesn't that mean two-thirds are on our side? According to my old math. So I have on my side the one who spoke and the heavens and the earth leapt into existence. And I also have on my side two thirds of the angels. That the Bible, and you're looking at a passage where it does this kind of thing, where God dispatches angels to help us. So then why are we so worried about everything? don't have anything to worry about as a Christian when you understand your resources in God. If God, Abraham says, brought me this far, the wife, marriage, Rebecca thing, that's easy. It uh, reminds me of Romans chapter 8 where it talks about if God did not spare his son... If God did not spare His Son, if He gave you the greatest gift already, then the little things, the trials of life, Sermon on the Mount, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? Small potatoes. Who am I going to marry? God's got that under control. But there's nobody around me but Canaanites and unbelievers. Don't worry about it. God's got that under control. Your husband... Your spouse, your wife is on the way. That's what we tell our daughter all the time. We've already, we've already prayed for it. God's gonna bring the right person into your life at the right time. Yeah, but I want things to be executed on my schedule. Well, there's the problem. My youth pastor years ago, said, if you want to make God laugh, show him your plans for your life. That'll make him laugh. Because what we think we can do for ourselves is so minuscule in comparison to what he has in store for us. You do see verse 8, a condition. Abraham kind of lets the servant off the hook a little bit. He says, but if the woman is not willing to follow, then you will be free from this oath. Only do not take my son Isaac back there. Now, you can get out of this severe oath if the woman won't come. Now, that's going to be a joke because once Rebecca figures out what's happening, she can't wait to meet Isaac. God's already prepared her heart. So I'll, I'll let you have a little wet wiggle room here. Um, the oath doesn't apply anymore if she won't come. But whatever you do, don't take my son out of here. Because I'm walking by faith. And the land of Canaan is going to become the land of Israel. And it's all mine by solemn oath given in the Abrahamic Covenant. Wow, what a progress of faith. The story, or the paragraph, not the story, concludes with the oath being entered into, verse 9. So the servant placed his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. And that ends the instructions to Abraham. And then next week, the servant is going to start to pray. Boy, that's a good idea. You're stepping out in faith. That's a great thing to pray. Lord, I need some guidance. Then the servant providentially is going to beat Rebecca and Laban. Isaac and Rebecca will be betrothed. And then the chapter, as we'll see, concludes in such a beautiful way with a marriage that was absolutely necessary in order for the divine program concerning Israel to go forward. So are you excited about this chapter? I am. And so I would encourage you before next week to read the chapter in its entirety if you haven't done that. You know, just as the Lord is going to put together Isaac and Rebekah, Do we understand that the ultimate marriage is happening now where he's putting together bride and groom? The groom is Jesus. Who's the bride? The bride is us, the church. Ephesians 5 verses 22 through 33 tells us that the marriage is sort of a, in terms of the role, That the marital parties play is identical in many respects or analogous to our role that we have with Jesus Christ Himself. Do you want to get engaged today? Do you want to get engaged today to someone who loves you in the deepest way possible? How do you get engaged? how he get hitched, you accept his word. For without faith, it is impossible to please God. The gospel, as we celebrated today, is the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, where Jesus, in his final words on the cross, said, It is finished. Jesus came into the world to fix a problem that we can't fix. I'll fix the problem for you. You can't fix yourself. I'll fix it. And to show you how serious I am about fixing the problem, I'm going to send the eternally existent second member of the Godhead to resolve it, Jesus Christ. Everything is done. Christianity is not a doing religion. It is a done religion. The only thing left to get engaged is to receive by faith what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. And that's it. The world of religiosity will so complicate this. But what did Jesus say? My yoke is easy. My burden is light. The heavy lifting, if I can use that expression, has already been accomplished. Just trust. And what Jesus did for you 2,000 years ago, and just like that, you're engaged. You're the bride. And He's the groom. And your future is so bright that if God explained everything to you that He was gonna, He's gonna do for you, you wouldn't understand it anyway. I can't think of a better arrangement than that. Can you? And so our exhortation to people that may be in the building, listening online, listening to the archives after the fact, who are sort of unclear about their eternity is to fulfill that condition by believing, which is another way of saying trusting what Jesus did in their place 2,000 years ago. You trust Jesus for your eternity and the safekeeping of your soul. That's the only condition God asks for. And so the Spirit of God has been dispatched into the world to convict men and women of their need to do this. It's the most important unmet need a human being has is this issue I'm talking about. There's nothing more fundamental in terms of an unmet need than this one right here. And so our exhortation is to trust in Jesus Christ. You don't have to walk an aisle to receive this. You don't have to give money to receive this. You don't have to join a church to receive this. We appreciate all of our new members. But what I'm talking about here has nothing to do with this. You trust in Jesus. You fulfill a condition that the Bible 160 times tells the lost sinner to do. We invite you to do that now in the hearing of my voice in a matter of privacy between you and the Lord. If it's something that you want more explanation on, I'm available after the service to talk. Shall we pray? Father, we're grateful for this marriage that we have. We're grateful for the Isaac-Rebecca marriage and what it put into motion. And we're just going to leave here, Lord, with hope and optimism in a world that's very discouraged and down and defeated. Help us to leave with optimism today, knowing that we're on the right side of history because of this man, Jesus Christ. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said,